Good afternoon. It is Friday, May 15, 2020. And on today's episode of the Code St. Luke Telephone Broadcasting Service and Podcast, we have Stephen Tomlinson, who will be sharing his movie and TV recommendations. One of the items he talks about is called The League of Gentlemen which is a 1960 movie, and it is available for free to watch on YouTube. This is an ensemble work led by actor Jack Hawkins, who wittily embodies an army colonel, bitter about being forced into retirement, who ropes a cadre of slightly dodgy, down-on-their-luck former British Army men into aiding him in a massive, precisely calibrated bank robbery. Katie Bazaire is here to uh, give some book recommendations. Uh, One of the books uh, that she talks about is called Maybe You Should Talk to Someone, A Therapist, Her Therapist, and Our Lives Revealed by author Lori Gottlieb. She has the kind of very relatable narrative voice that, while reading her, you feel like you're listening to your smart, self-aware best friend who you want to be more like, even when she's kind of a mess because her honesty with you and with herself is clearly steeped in a kind of compassionate pragmatism, both for herself and for others. Finally, uh, music librarian Farah Muhammad is back, and she's going to be talking about the life and the music of Judy Garland. Born Frances Ethel Gum in Grand Rapids, Minnesota in 1922, Garland came from a showbiz family. She was already performing by the age of four, And at seven, she joined the successful singing and dancing act with her sisters, all at the insistence of their mother, Ethel. And to end today's show, we have another edition of Corona Serenades. This is uh, from baritone Christopher Dunham, who will be singing the song, If Ever I Would Leave You, from Camelot. So that is today's show, and here is Stephen Tomlinson with TV and movie recommendations. Hi everyone, welcome to another installment of Lockdown Viewing here on the Cote St. Luke Telephone Broadcast Service. I certainly hope you're safe, happy, and healthy. This is Cote St. Luke Librarian Stephen Tomlinson, and for the next 20 minutes or so, I will be providing recommendations for what to watch and where to watch it regarding movies, television, and internet streaming content. Okay, this week I'm going to start with the theater. Are you missing going to the theater to see concerts, musicals, plays, and movies? Of course you are. We all are. But it may not be possible to do so again for at least a few more months to come. There are, however, many websites that are streaming their productions all over the internet. Some for free, but mostly for pay for view or by subscription. One of the sites you can go to to find such content is playbill.com and begin by checking out their daily live stream calendar for things to watch and listen to over various platforms like YouTube, Facebook, Zoom, and Instagram. Much here is free to watch, though you may have to register on Zoom, and a theatrical performance will probably require a subscription or or a fee of a few dollars at least. But more importantly, Playbill.com is an especially good source for where to find theatrical performances that you might stream at home. Just type into your browser, meaning 
do an internet search of the following words. 15 Broadway plays and musicals you can watch on stage from home, quote unquote, and maybe include the word playbill as well. But don't worry if you miss or misspell a word, you should still find it easily. This list is really more than 15 plays and musicals. Once there, I think you'll find several links to famous performances in the platforms like iTunes, Google Play, and Amazon on which you can stream them. You may have to be patient. There's a lot of content in these links to go through, and some, some of it may not be available in Canada for licensing reasons. And of course, you'll also need a good internet connection to stream anything without interruption. And most, most of the best things, as in life, will not be free. But do persevere. I'm sure you'll find something of interest of that, I'm quite sure. One very noteworthy performance that is streaming for free this weekend, and Barbara, I hope you're listening here, is Andrew Lloyd Webber's 1998 production of Cats the original filmed version of the musical Cats, made 20 years before Tom Hooper's very recent, much mauled box office catastrophe is to be streamed on YouTube this weekend for free. Once Broadway's longest running musical, everybody has an opinion on Cats, but this is the original production captured on a stage in London in 1998, with original West End star Elaine Page, no less, and something that has not been easily obtainable on DVD for several years now. I know I've tried to obtain it on behalf of the library and the many patrons who have requested it, but here it is now, free to view. Just go to youtube.com. The shows must go on. This has been made available for free on YouTube as part of the show's Must Go On, a series of recorded Andrew Lloyd Webber productions that have included Jesus Christ Superstar and The Phantom of the Opera, among others, though they're no longer available to view in their entirety. But if interested, I'd encourage you to subscribe to the channel for free for future updates. You never know. That's Andrew Lloyd Webber's YouTube channel, the Shows Must Go On, where you can find that 1998 performance of Cats in its entirety. Starring Elaine Page as Grizabella, the role she originated when the musical premiered in 1981, and which brought her a top 10 hit that year with the song Memory, the cast also includes John Mills as Gus the Theatre Cat, Ken Page as Old Deuteronomy, and Susie McKenna as Jenny Anydots. It's a streamlined version of the stage production, filmed without a live audience at London's Adelphi Theatre, and it will be available for free for 48 hours as of 2 p.m. today, and I do believe that is Eastern Standard Time. Oh, by the way, Andrew Lloyd Webber, whose new London West End version of Cinderella, is one of the many productions delayed by the coronavirus shutdown has been playing his own compositions for fans on Twitter in recent weeks. So you might want to check that out. And in the coming weeks, I will do my best 
to direct you to sites where you can watch more musicals, plays, and other performances, like Billboard, Broadway Direct, Met Opera, Digital Direct, and the National Theatre Live. However, most such content is pay-per-view or through a subscriber cost. But don't fear, the Coast St. Luke Public Library's Hoopla Digital Service also has you covered, at least in part, for easy-to-stream content that is free to you as a member of the library. And there you can find both the musicals, the 25th anniversary performance of Phantom of the Opera from the Royal Albert Hall, as well as a 25th anniversary celebration of Les Miserables. Most of the many other musicals available on Hoopla Digital are, however, Hollywood movie musicals, of which there are a lot, and some of which I've spoken about in the past. All you need is a library card and an email address to join. Now, you often hear me talking about Hoopla Digital as a resource for movies, but it is so much more than that. It's also great for music, audiobooks, ebooks, and television, especially British television. And speaking of British, a movie in this case, and something I would like to recommend for streaming on Hoopla Digital is the wonderful film Mrs. Palfrey at the Claremont, a light, touching, and skillfully underplayed comedy drama from 2005. Based on the 1971 novel by the English writer Elizabeth Taylor, no, not the movie star, this film stars the esteemable Joan Plowright and the then very young Rupert Friend whose unexpected friendship forms the basis for the plot, such as it is, as it's really a kind of dual character study of both Mrs. Palfrey, an elderly widow, who's been more or less emotionally abandoned after moving into a retirement home in London, but also that of the eccentric, impoverished young writer that she befriends after being rescued by him after a fall in the street. The rest of the movie really just chronicles that developing friendship, and nothing more than that, especially after he begins masquerading with her connivance as her grandson to the other aged residents of the retirement home. It's a simple premise, really, but one that continually goes against our expectations in the most interesting ways especially in advancing the radical notion that your family really should deserve you. And if they don't, well, maybe you should find appropriate substitutes, if at all possible. Of course, in Mrs. Palfrey at the Claremont, there's bitter to go along with the sweet. But both these characters take a quiet, intelligent delight in each other's companionship. And that delight is passed on to us as viewers of the film. In many ways, what it most reminds me of is the classic film My Dinner with Andre, though Mrs. Palfrey at the Claremont is a much more visual film, especially making great use of its London locations. But I guess it's the concentrated meeting of minds of these two characters that most reminds me of My Dinner with Andre. The great actress Joan Plowright 
most recently seen in the documentary Tea with the Danes, is especially good in a restrained performance that relies much on her underused movie star presence, rather than her more famous theatricality. Indeed, she carries the movie with a quiet dignity, grace, and generosity of spirit that's positively wonderful. At the same time, the movie is a lot of fun, and the rest of the cast is loaded with delightfully eccentric British characters that seem to have been lifted from the great Ealing studio comedies of the 1950s. And both visually and spiritually, it's an Anglophile's celebration of the magic of London. It's also a film to be enjoyed by those who either haven't yet grown into cynicism or have grown beyond it. And it may be a perfect viewing occasion for grandmothers and granddaughters. Although be cautioned that some tears are bound to be in the offing. That's Mrs. Palfrey at the Claremont, available to stream on the library's Hoopla digital service. Now, speaking of characteristic British fare, something I saw last weekend on YouTube and also for free is the immensely enjoyable, much-loved crime movie, The League of Gentlemen, from 1960. This is an ensemble work led by actor Jack Hawkins, who wittily embodies an army colonel, bitter about being forced into retirement, who ropes a cadre of slightly dodgy, down-on-their-luck former British Army men into aiding him in a massive, precisely calibrated bank robbery. Or so he hopes. Under the consummate direction of Basil Dearden, a delightful cast of British all-stars, including Richard Attenborough, Brian Forbes, Nigel Patrick, and Roger Livesey helped bring to life this expertly paced caper, a film that was immensely popular at the time and which influenced countless Hollywood heist films to come. Not to mention Guy Ritchie's very recent British crime film, itself entitled The Gentleman, which I talked about here last week. But The League of Gentlemen has serious undercurrents, belying its jovial, often comedic and polished exterior including at least one joke that I found laugh-out-loud funny, as the men here are all disgruntled ex-veterans attempting to escape the existential corners they've all been backed into. Although a lot has changed in the last 60 years, the basic male archetypes sketched out in the League of Gentlemen remain, I think, broadly relevant. And in some ways, the League of Gentlemen is what might have happened if you can imagine such a conceit to the characters of The Great Escape, a film from the same period, at least to those characters who survived the story and found themselves, if you can imagine it, involved in a much less glorious endeavor 15 or more years after the events of that film. It's that kind of virtually all-male ensemble piece of collective endeavor. But only in The League of Gentlemen, the tone is much more richly ironic if no less stiff upper lip than in The Great Escape. One of the things I most like about The League of Gentlemen is its very striking visual sense. For example, in its opening image of a very distinguished-looking Jack Hawkins in formal evening wear, peering up from beneath a manhole cover in the middle of the street, then hoisting himself up after the street washer passes by, and nonchalantly strutting down that street as if nothing particularly unusual is going on. It's never quite explained what he was up to down in the sewer, but that's beside the point, really. 
He's clearly on the dodge, hiding out from who knows what, but in his defiant persistence and perfectly composed refusal to internalize his difficulties, he perfectly encapsulates the tone of the film. Hawkins is a man with a plan and a mission to fulfill. Now all he has to do is round up a suitable, if shadowy, company of well-trained and disciplined men just like himself in order to carry it off. But of course, things don't go exactly as planned. As a heist film, The League of Gentlemen takes a leisurely pace in getting its gang together. But very likely, audiences in 1960 had a much greater attention span than in our own day. So that shouldn't prove too much of a difficulty, especially with all the lovely grace notes along the way, including a very brief, if campy, appearance by a young Oliver Reed. And while the stunts are pulled off crisply enough, they don't hold up all that well by today's standards of high-tech ingenuity or muscular slam-bang action. But that hardly matters to our enjoyment of the film. The League of Gentlemen has all the pace and all the creeping edginess, typical of a great heist movie. What makes this one so special is the wonderful cast and close attention to detail. And it's something I'm very happy to recommend here. That's The League of Gentlemen, streaming for free, in high definition, on YouTube. But see it quickly, it may not be there for long. And make sure it's the 1960 film that you find, and not a much later TV series of the same title. You can most easily find it by searching for the words, and I quote, The League of Gentlemen, 1960, Jack Hawkins, Full Movie HD, end quote. Enjoy. I know you will. I mentioned The Great Escape earlier, made in 1963, and not only for its symbiosis or happenstance, but also because a new two-disc Blu-ray version from Criterion Films has been released this week, and which I am very much hoping will soon be in my mailbox, as I ordered it from Amazon months ago, just after its release announcement. Not that I haven't already seen The Great Escape countless times, just not in a pristine Blu-ray transfer, which this will no doubt be. Criterion's well-deserved reputation for quality always preceding it. And I'm sure it will include all the bells and whistles of extra features, like documentaries, interviews, and audio commentaries, almost like the scholarly edition of a classic 19th century novel. No doubt you too are familiar with the film, but just in case you aren't, it's the classic action epic that recounts the planning, execution, and aftermath of a daring true-life escape from a German prisoner of war camp during World War II, in which 250 men attempt to tunnel their way to freedom. It's truly marvelous stuff, so much so that one can almost forgive the film's non-acknowledgement of the heavy Canadian involvement in the real-life event. Nevertheless, in the role that cemented his superstar status, Steve McQueen plays the motorcycle racing daredevil who sets out to foil the Nazis, alongside an all-star cast that includes Charles Bronson, James Coburn, James Garner, and Donald Pleasance. 
the expert direction of John Sturges, the eminently hummable Elmer Bernstein score, and the rip-roaring stunts all come together to make for what just might be the most spectacularly entertaining prison break movie of all time, and a rousing ode to the determination, camaraderie, and courage of everyday heroes. Of course, to men of my generation and older, The Great Escape is also the visual equivalent of perfect Hollywood comfort food, which yours truly is only too happy to consume again and again. And if, as I said earlier, Mrs. Palfrey at the Claremont might make for perfect viewing for a grandmother and granddaughter, then surely The Great Escape is a perfect viewing opportunity for a grandfather and grandson. That's The Great Escape in a new, restored, two-disc Blu-ray edition from Criterion Films, which can be ordered from Amazon.ca for about $48. I know, a little pricey, but it would also make for a great gift. Ah, you know, there's so much I'd really like to talk about, but so little time. So just before I go, let me mention some noteworthy things on TV this week, and I'll save the rest for future weeks including more contemporary and several of the new Jewish-themed shows on Netflix, HBO, and elsewhere. My pick of the bunch this week for movies to watch on Turner Classic Movies, TCM, is the truly great, if too little known these days, I Love You Again, from 1940. It is perhaps the best of the many, in this case, very screwball Hollywood comedies starring the often-teamed William Powell and Myrna Loy, whose incomparable charm, charisma, and chemistry together has arguably never been bettered in Hollywood history. In I Love You Again, Powell plays a wealthy businessman, and he and Loy always played wealthy and sophisticated together, who snaps out of a long bout of amnesia, reverts to a conman persona, and then falls in love with his wife all over again. But as so often in screwball comedies, the plot makes absolutely no sense whatsoever. Not that you or anyone else will care. I Love You Again is a complete delight from start to finish. That's Sunday, May 17th at 8 a.m. on TCM, Turner Classic Movies. So unless you're an early riser, you might want to record it on your cable box or digital video recorder. That's I Love You Again. Meanwhile, over on ABC TV on Tuesday, May 19th, at the slightly more reasonable hour of 8 p.m., is The Story of Soaps, a two-hour special that sounds very interesting. It is said to chronicle the history of the soap opera, trace how its mostly female creators migrated from radio to television to become the dominant force in daytime television for the last five decades, and also account for the massive impact the genre has had on the world at large. Certainly one influence that I can see is that soap operas helped establish the serialized storytelling that is so prominent in both franchise movies and prestige television today. It will also be interesting to learn how else they have impacted upon the larger cultural consciousness as well. 
It looks like there will be plenty of expert commentary involved in this history of daytime drama, including such creators as Brad Bell of The Bold and the Beautiful and Agnes Nixon of All My Children, as well as contemporary soap stars like Susan Lucci and Deidre Hall, as well as daytime alumni like John Stamos and Alec Baldwin. That's The Story of Soaps, a two-hour special on ABC TV on Tuesday, May 19th at 8 p.m. Finally, let me leave you with this, a two-hour episode of American Masters, entitled I've Gotta Be Me, about the life and career of Sammy Davis Jr. on PBS TV a week from today, next Friday, May 22nd at 9 p.m. This isn't brand new. I think it first came out last year on PBS, but it is really, as far as I know, the only substantial documentary to examine the performer's career and his self-described, rather unique journey for identity through the shifting tides of civil rights and racial progress during 20th century America. Sammy Davis Jr., of course, is maybe today most famous for having been part of the Las Vegas Rat Pack, but he had the kind of career that was indisputably legendary both in scope and scale. And yet, his life was complex, complicated and contradictory. Very much an outsider figure as a black man, he nevertheless strove to achieve the American dream in a time of much racism and shifting political territory. Davis was a veteran of increasingly outdated show business traditions, but he worked to stay relevant even as he frequently found himself bracketed by the bigotry of white America and also the distaste of black America, which often saw him as a kind of cultural and racial sellout. To complicate matters further, Davis was also the most public black figure to embrace Judaism, thereby attaching his identity to that of another historically persecuted minority. In Duke Ellington's words, Sammy Davis Jr. was beyond category. Made over a series of years and featuring interviews with Billy Crystal, Norman Lear, Jerry Lewis, Whoopi Goldberg, and Kim Novak, with photographs from Davis's vast personal collection and footage from his performances in television, film, and concert, this documentary will explore the life and art of a uniquely gifted entertainer whose trajectory paralleled the major flashpoints of American society from the Depression through the 1980s. And it's one I'm looking forward to viewing a week from today on PBS television, Friday, May 22nd at 9 p.m. Anyway, that's all for now, folks. I hope you've enjoyed this installment of Lockdown Viewing and will join me next week for more recommendations of what to watch and where to watch it. This has been Stephen Tomlinson, your movie, TV, and streaming librarian, remotely but still a part of the Cote St. Luke Public Library. Remember, if you have any comments or questions, you can best reach me at stomlinson at cotesaintluke.org, or failing that, by means of the library's Facebook page, where you can find a complete list of everything I've talked about today or even by calling the library at 514-485-6900 
and leaving a message. Once again, I hope you're safe, happy, and healthy. Talk to you soon. Bye-bye and happy viewing. Hello. Welcome to another episode of Book Talking with Your Librarians and Good Afternoon. My name is Katie Bezer, and I'm a librarian and the Senior Services Coordinator at the Code St. Luke Public Library. Today, I'm going to talk about some of the books that I've been reading during this confinement period. Now, I don't know what your reading preferences are like, but I tend to read a little bit of everything. In the last few weeks, I've read nonfiction, thrillers, science fiction, fantasy, literary fiction, mysteries, you name it. It's a bit of a mixed bag. But then again, so are the times we're living through right now. In recognition of that, there was no real common theme to the books I'm going to talk about, other than that I enjoyed them, that they are all available electronically from your OverDrive or Libby app with your library membership, and they have, each of them, offered me some kind of perspective on these unprecedented times. I've read a few nonfiction books in the last few weeks, mostly memoirs. Maybe You Should Talk to Someone by Laurie Gottlieb was on the New York Times bestseller list for weeks and is about, as the cover blurb states, a therapist, her therapist, and our lives revealed. It's a memoir about therapy and about being human. I know, that sounds a little overly simplistic, but it's true. Gottlieb not only talks about her own therapy, but also about the therapy sessions she's had with some of her clients, having obtained permission to do so, of course, and also having changed any identifying traits. Intertwining narratives about her own struggles alongside those of her patients shows her readers a disparate collection of personal challenges. Alcoholism, end-of-life arrangements, anger issues, perfectionism, relationship and family traumas all come together and highlight the different ways different people struggle in life. Gottlieb is a great writer. This is her third published book. She's worked in television. She's contributed to National Public Radio, has written for all kinds of publications like the New York Times and the Washington Post, and she writes a weekly column for The Atlantic called Dear Therapist. She has the kind of very relatable narrative voice that, while reading her, you feel like you're listening to your smart, self-aware best friend who you want to be more like, even when she's kind of a mess, because her honesty with you and with herself is clearly steeped in a kind of compassionate pragmatism, both for herself and for others. I don't want to give too much away, even though this book is a fantastic example of the journey being the destination. But what emerges is a really interesting and intersectional, non-linear story about the challenges we face as humans and the struggles we're all in to be better at it. Frederick Backman's A Man Called Ove is also about compassion, understanding, and the recognition that things are not always what they seem to be at first glance. It came out ages ago, in 2014, but it's been on and off our waitlist at the library, so I came to it a little late. 
This one is purportedly about an unlikable man who seems to work extra hard at making people like him even less. He has a very definite perspective on how life should be lived and how things should be done. Correctly, in case you didn't know. And he gets extremely frustrated and angry when others do not live up to his high expectations. Ove is also terribly sad and detached from the people living around him until he is forced to reconnect to his community. Community. This is what struck me as the most central theme to a man called Ove. Maybe if I'd read it at another time, I'd have had a different takeaway, though that's true of most books I find. But this resonated with me because of the contrasting themes of isolation and community, much like the existence we're living now. We're isolated from each other physically in most ways, and it makes us long for social connection in the same way that Ove does, even if he doesn't realize it. This desire for community is a fairly typical human need. How many times have we heard that thing about humans being social animals? But I also think the quality of these connections has been brought into focus. Moving away from our rush, 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 highly scheduled lives has helped to centralize the quality of our relationships within our communities. How much we miss face-to-face interactions, how important it is to stay in contact with each other, even virtually or by telephone. I also feel that, just like maybe you should talk to someone, a man called Ove points out that everyone is struggling in some way, whether obviously or not. This is something a lot of us have become more aware of during this crisis, and the recognition that other people's struggles are real or valid, even if they aren't the same things we contend with, is a facet of compassion that helps us to become better humans and by virtue of that, helps us to make better communities. Another great novel I read is called Boy Swallows Universe by Trent Dalton, an Australian author. It's a coming-of-age story about Eli Bell, 12 years old at the opening of the book. Eli lives with his brother August, their mom, and her boyfriend in a poor neighborhood in Brisbane. His brother doesn't speak, And Eli's best friend at 12 is an escaped convict named Slim Halliday. Throughout the telling of the book, Eli becomes aware of the importance of drug trafficking to his and his family's life. He loses and finds, and loses and finds his family. He falls in love. He deals with heartbreak. He finds himself. While Slim Halliday doesn't feature strongly in the book in terms of page time, Eli's friendship with him really seems to form the foundation of his character and therefore propels so much of the narrative. Slim exemplifies the ideal of the noble criminal and instills in Eli the tenets of a morality that may not recognize the same ideas of right and wrong as an average middle-class Western population, but which still promotes the desire to become a good man, the importance of keeping one's word, and of standing up for and protecting the people we love. Boy Swallows Universe is a novel about growing up, about drugs, about following your dreams, about violence, and about family, and faith, and love, and wonder. 
This one reminded me a lot of Donna Tartt's The Goldfinch. They're each of them about a boy's complicated journey into maturity, about reconciling the flawed adults in his life with his visions of idealized adulthood, and about learning to save himself as much as the people he loves in his life. I do have some issues with the portrayal of women in it. They tend to be very one-dimensional and fill either idealized or demonized archetypes from my perspective, but that's probably at least a little bit unfair of me as it is a story loosely based on Dalton's real childhood, including his friendship with real life figure Slim Halliday. Also, the writing and the story are so good, it bothered me less than it otherwise would have. And there is one really interesting woman in the story, a neighborhood drug dealer who defies expectations. I'll leave it at that. This one, like all good fiction, and a lot of bad fiction too, to be honest, again contributed to my sense of perspective. Especially now, when we are so much more sheltered from the realities of other people, I love reading fiction that can flesh out what we ourselves have not experienced. That this novel is based on Dalton's own life shouldn't be surprising, because he is so adept at describing the motivations behind his characters' actions. But it is surprising, because as much as Eli's growing up contains some normal features, like tension with his father, a best friend, a local bully, and falling in love, it's definitely not the kind of reality we tend to look at as normal. When the best friend is an older ex-con prison escapee, (laughs) the local bully wields a samurai sword, and his love interest is prophesied by his mostly mute brother. If you can see what I mean. The next book I'm going to talk about is a sci-fi police novel. When I first became more aware of the growing global concern about the spread of the coronavirus, I admit that I did have a bit of a binge with pandemic fiction, which is to say all kinds of novels revolving around pandemic-type storylines. It may seem strange, but I found it comforting to read stories like Emily St. John Mandel's Station Eleven, about sicknesses that completely decimate the world's population and cause full-on economic collapse. Because, because as bad and challenging as things are now, and they most definitely are, they aren't quite as bad as having only 2% of the world's population survive. Anyway, this science fiction police novel, The Last Policeman by Ben Winters, was read as an extension of that need of mine to be comforted with worser case scenarios. The Last Policeman isn't really science fiction, and it isn't pandemic fiction either. It's about an asteroid that will be colliding with the Earth in the near future, and there's nothing anyone can do about it. This collision will decimate the Earth's population, so when the novel opens, our hero, Hank Pallas, is a new detective on a dwindling police force in New Hampshire. The police force is dwindling, as are a lot of jobs, because a lot of people are coping with the impending asteroid collision by going bucket list and leaving their normal lives in order to do and experience whatever it is they want to be sure they've done and experienced before the world, as they know it at least, ends. 
Pallas is different, though. He has a very deeply ingrained sense of right and wrong, and he plans on upholding these beliefs through his job as detective. The story itself is about a murder, or what Pallas believes to be a murder, that others are more content to dismiss as suicide instead of solving. Or investigating. I won't get too deep into the storyline, because I would hate to give anything away. But while it reads like a lot of detective fiction, with the hero going up against the status quo where he is the only one intent on righting a wrong, the backdrop of the asteroid is a really interesting addition. Often it seems an almost forgettable event, because there is a lot of normal life that continues to take place, but the asteroid's impending arrival actually colors all of the characters' actions, including those of our straight-laced detective palace. Finally, I've also been doing a lot of comfort reading, which is to say rereading classics. I have two little kids, and one of the books that we read aloud together, and that I subsequently reread by myself, is J.R.R. Tolkien's The Hobbit, or There and Back Again. This, of course, tells of the adventures of Mr. Bilbo Baggins on an unasked-for adventure with a group of dwarves in order to steal a dragon's gold. Along the way, he meets trolls, goblins, a golem, of course, a very cool bear man, or man bear, elves, men, eagles, spiders, and the dragon, and he eventually makes his way home again. It's a story full of adventure and thrills, but that also notes how uncomfortable excitement really is, and Bilbo often longs to be home snug in his very own hobbit hole with his very full larder. Reading this book again during this time of confinement put into perspective how lovely it can be to be stuck at home, especially as I know from conversations with friends, colleagues, and with so many of you how difficult it has been and remains to be, to be here. There's a quote by Mason Cooley, who is an American academic. Reading gives us a place to go when we have to stay where we are. I don't know if this was his originally, but he's who I first heard this sentiment attributed to. So anyway... I lied. At the beginning of this episode, I said there wasn't much to link together the books I was talking about, and I think I said that mostly because they don't seem to have a lot in common. Maybe You Should Talk to Someone is a real-life memoir. A Man Called Ove is a Swedish novel about an aged misanthrope. Boy Swallows Universe is a coming-of-age novel about an Australian boy growing up surrounded by seediness and sincerity. The Last Policeman is about a by-the-book police officer solving crime in a pre-apocalyptic New England town. And The Hobbit is about an unassuming fellow who finds himself the hero of an adventure and achieves great things, even if most of the time he just wants to go home where second breakfast is always an option. As different as these books may seem to be from each other at first glance, they each allow us to see the world with fresh perspective or at least they did for me. If you have any questions or comments, I would be happy to hear from you. You can contact me by email at kbazare at 
That's K-B-E-Z-A-I-R-E at CoteStLuke.org. Or you can leave me a message at the Library Reference Desk at 514-485-6900. Each of the books I've talked about today are available digitally through your OverDrive or Libby app. And if you don't already have either of these installed on your smartphone or tablet, Give us a call at the library and we'll be happy to walk you through the steps. I wish the very best to all of you. Stay safe and take care. Well, hello and welcome to another musical moment. My name is Farah Mohammed, and today we're over the rainbow with Judy Garland. In a time of much uncertainty due to the COVID-19 pandemic, Signs of hope and positivity can still be found everywhere. Inspired by a campaign widely believed started in Italy, many Montreal families who are confined to their homes are getting creative by drawing rainbows on windows, doors, driveways, and sidewalks with the slogan, It's going to be okay. This, of course, has brought to mind that other very famous rainbow, that beautiful song sung by Judy Garland. Judy Garland was the star of many classic musical films and was known for her tremendous talent and troubled life. But while Garland became an international icon of stage and screen, she also endured several struggles in her personal life including a reliance on drugs, a string of marriages that had ended in heartbreak, and challenges with her mental health. Born Frances Ethel Gum in Grand Rapids, Minnesota in 1922, Garland came from a showbiz family. She was already performing by the age of four, and at seven, she joined the successful singing and dancing act with her sisters, all at the insistence of their mother, Ethel. The family moved to California in 1926 in search of greater fame for the Gum Sisters, who had, by this time, been reinvented as the Garlands. It was at the tender age of 13 that a young Judy would commit to a contract with MGM, one of the world's greatest film studios. According to Hollywood legend, Studio boss Louis B. Mayer signed her on the spot without a screen test. These early MGM days saw the beginning of Garland's lifelong struggles with addiction, body image, and mental health, largely fueled by the studio's determination to mold her into a profitable box office star. My life was a combination of absolute chaos and absolute solitude, Garland later said, reflecting on her unusual and troubled adolescence. The first of Garland's five marriages was at the age of 19 to composer David Rose. Her second was to director Vincent Minnelli in 1945 after he directed her in Meet Me in St. Louis the previous year. No matter how troubling her life was off stage, on screen, she was luminous. Here is the title song from the movie 
Meet Me in St. Louis. When Louis came home to the flat, he hung up his coat and his hat. He gazed all around, but no wifey he found. So he said, where can Flossie be at? A note on the table he spied. He read it just once, then he cried. It ran, Louis dear, it's too slow for me here. So I think I will go for a ride. Meet me in St. Louis, Louis. Meet me at the fair. Don't tell me the lights are shining any place but there. We will dance the hoochie-coochie. I will be your tootsie-woosie if you will meet me in St. Louis-Louis. Meet me at the a wonderfully catchy number called The Trolley Song. Just hear the energy in her voice as she sings with such stamina. With my high starch collar and my high top shoes and my hair piled high up on my head, I Went to lose a jolly hour on the trolley and lost my heart instead. With his light brown derby and his bright green tie, he was quite the handsomest of men. I started to yen, so I counted to ten, then I counted to ten again. Clang, clang, clang went the trolley. Ding, ding, ding went the bell. Zing, zing, zing went my heartstrings. From the moment I saw him, I fell. Chug, chug, chug went the motor. Bump, bump, bump went the brake. Thump, thump, thump went my heartstrings. When he smiled, I could feel the car shake. He tipped his hat and took a seat. He said he hoped he hadn't stepped upon my feet. He asked my name, I held my breath. I couldn't speak because he scared me half to death. Buzz, buzz, buzz went the buzzer. Plop, plop, plop went the wheels. Stop, stop, stop went my 
he started to go, then I started to know how it feels when the universe frills. The day was bright, the air was sweet, the smell of honeysuckle charmed you off your feet. You tried to sing, but couldn't squeak. In fact, you loved him so you couldn't even speak. Buzz, 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 went the buzzer. He started to leave. I took hold of his sleeve with my hand. And as if it were planned, he stayed on with me, and it was grand just to stand with his hand holding mine to the end of the line. time, Garland began to break down emotionally. Likely exhausted from years of constant work and from all the medications she used to keep herself going, she developed a reputation for being unreliable and unstable. In 1950, MGM dropped her from her contract because of her emotional and physical difficulties. Garland's career appeared to be spiraling downward. Here's a rather bittersweet song called Smile. Smile is a song based on an instrumental theme used in the soundtrack for Charlie Chaplin's 1936 movie, Modern Times. Chaplin composed the music inspired by Puccini's Tosca. John Turner and Jeffrey Parsons added the lyrics and title in 1954. In the lyrics based on lines and themes from the film, the singer is telling the listener to cheer up and that there is always a bright tomorrow, just as long as they smile. Smile, though your heart is aching. Smile, even though it's breaking. When there are clouds in the sky, You'll get by If you smile Through your fear and sorrow Smile and maybe tomorrow You'll see the sun Come shining through For you face with gladness hide every trace of sadness although a tear may be ever so near that's the time you must keep on trying Smile, what's the use of crying? 
1950s brought much change for Garland. She would separate from Minnelli and negotiate a release from her contract at MGM, where her career had been marked by suspensions, publicized suicide attempts, and struggles with drugs. She would also meet Sidney Luft, a somewhat questionable man about town with a questionable past. Whatever personal difficulties Garland and Luft had, he had a positive impact on her career and was instrumental in putting together one of her greatest films. Starring opposite James Mason, Garland gave an outstanding performance as a woman who obtains stardom at the price of love in A Star is Born. Her rendition of The Man That Got Away is considered one of her best performances on film and she was nominated for an Academy Award. The night is bitter, the stars have lost their glitter, the winds grow colder, suddenly you're older, and all because of the man that got away. No! Done you that great beginning has seen a final inning. Don't know what happened, it's all a crazy game.
Summerstock was a 1950 American musical film produced by MGM. It was directed by Charles Walters and starred Judy Garland and Gene Kelly. Garland struggled with many personal problems during filming, and Summerstock proved to be her final film for MGM, as well as her last on-screen pairing with Kelly. With regards to the song Get Happy... She performed it perfectly in just a couple of takes. According to one New York Times critic, Get Happy finds Miss Garland looking and performing her best. However, by mutual agreement, MGM terminated Garland's contract in September 1950, something studio head L.B. Mayer said he later regretted doing. Come on, get happy You better chase all your cares away Shout hallelujah, come on, get happy Get ready for the judgment day The sun is shining, come on, get happy The Lord is waiting to take your hand Shout hallelujah, come on, get happy We're going to the promised land We're heading across the river Wash your sins away in the tide It's all so peaceful Forget your troubles, come on, get happy You better chase all your cares away Shout hallelujah, come on, get happy Get ready for the judgment day Forget your troubles, come on, get happy Chase your cares away Hallelujah, get happy For the judgment day The sun is shining, come on, get happy The Lord is waiting to take your hand Shout hallelujah, come on we're gonna be going to the promised land. We're heading across the river. 
washes in the way in the tide. It's quiet and peaceful on the other side. Forget your troubles, get happy, your cares fly away. Shout hallelujah, get happy, get ready for your judgment day. Come on, get happy, chase your cares away. Shout hallelujah, come on, get happy, get ready for the judgment day. Sun is shining, come on, get happy, Lord is waiting to take your hand. Hallelujah, come on, get happy, we're going to the promised land. Heading across the river, throw your sins away in the tide. It's all so peaceful on the other side. Shout hallelujah, come on, get happy, you better chase all your cares away. Shout hallelujah, come on, get happy, get ready. In her final years, Garland was still in demand as an entertainer, playing gigs all around the world, but her personal life was as troubled as ever. After many separations, Garland divorced Luft in 1965 after a bitter battle over child custody. She quickly remarried, this time to actor Mark Herron, but that union lasted only a few months before dissolving. The next year, Garland went to London. She was in personal and financial trouble by this time. During performances at London's Talk of the Town nightclub, Garland was clearly not in good shape on stage. She wed former band leader and club manager Mickey Deans in March 1969. However, just a few months later, on June 22nd, she died in London of what was reported to be an accidental overdose. Although as heart-wrenching as her life was, Judy's voice remains a beacon of hope and comfort as she uplifts our spirits and connects with us on a very deep and profound level. I hope that you've enjoyed this week's musical moment, and please join me next time for some more great music. I'd like to finish with one last song, the one you've been waiting for. And like all those other rainbows that we see outside each day, we are reminded that one day everything will be okay.
their troubles melt like lemon drops away above the chimney tops. That's where you find me. Somewhere over the Today's Corona Serenade is "If Ever I Would Leave You" from Camelot by Leonard and Low, sung by Canadian baritone Christopher Dunham. Personal favorite of mine, "If Ever I Would Leave You" from Camelot. If ever I would leave you, it wouldn't be in summer. Seeing you in summer, I never would go. Your hair streaked with sunlight, your lips red as flames, your face with a luster. That puts gold to shame. But if I never leave you, it couldn't be in autumn. How I'd leave in autumn, I never would know. I've seen how you sparkle when fall nips the air. I know you in autumn. I must be there. And could I leave you running merrily through the snow, or on a wintry evening when you catch the fire's glow? If ever I would leave you, how could it be in springtime? Knowing how in spring I'm bewitched by you so. Oh no, not in springtime. 
time, summer, winter, or fall. No, never could I leave you. Right here in the front row to 10,000 seat back in this fantastic auditorium. But time to say goodbye with one more verse. If ever I believe you, how could it be in springtime? Knowing how in spring I knew each time you saw. Oh no, not in spring. Time, summer, winter, or fall. No, never could I leave you. That is today's episode of the Cote St. Luke Telephone Broadcasting Service. If you're listening at 2 p.m. on our phone line, we have another special item for you. Have a great day.